We believe in change and we're prepared for it with new techniques and new approaches. And as for our part, we feel that you're the best pieces of manpower available in this whole region. Let it go out there today, baby. Three, two, one. And once again, our mighty ship is back on course. Welcome to the Sports Talk with Devin Wade podcast. Mama, there goes that man. You know Welcome, welcome, welcome to another edition of the Sports Talk with Devin Wade podcast. So glad that you have joined us with all that's going on. You could be doing 8 million things, but I am so glad that you have found us and continue to listen and support us. Certainly appreciate that. want to remind you guys before we get rolling of a couple of things on the website. WadesWordProductions.com That's WadesWordProductions.com For all things D-Wade Whether it's the Friday Express, Sports Talk with Devin Wade Stage stuff, all of that WadesWordProductions.com Also the Sports Line 24 hours a day 832-941-6614 That's 832-941-6614 And then on social media At WadesWord on Twitter and, of course, D-Wade909 on Instagram and the Sports Talk with Devin Wade page and group on Facebook. All of those things are fun ways to know. And I try to avail myself in various avenues of social media. So whatever your preference is. I don't. Some of them I don't do, but for the most part, you can find a way to reach out to me. And I certainly appreciate it. And I try to engage you guys, especially on Twitter. I, I'm much more active on Twitter. But this time out, we have the special teams unit. Back in the building, former NFL linebacker Eddie Robinson, he is back. I mean, you know E-Rob 50. That's our guy. He, he's a regular. He's a part of the crew that I rotate in and out and listen to all the time and speak with all the time and defer to all the time entitled the special teams unit. Kalina is also on that. You know, years, uh, not years, not that many years ago, a couple of years ago, we did the Why We Kneel segment. Uh, we have a conversation about the Why We Kneel segment and just touching base with her on some of the social issues not necessarily related to sports. Now, that brings me to this. Now, I know that lately I have not. These, these have been very heavy shows. These shows have been a sort of more social, political. I've touched on a lot of different things. And I know for my, my diehards, I know for my diehards, some folks' eyes just glaze over. But just relax, because when the games start, we will start. What I'm not going to do is sit here and talk for 30 minutes on Jamal Adams warning a trade. It's not going to happen. I'm not going to sit here and say, who's going to win in the NBA bubble? Because quite frankly, we don't know who's going to be in the bubble. And so many different things can take place. And we don't even know that there is going to be a bubble yet. So you can go all other places for that. And once they get started in the bubble, we will talk NBA basketball quite a bit. Once the NFL gets started, when and if, we will talk about those things. If college football get started we will talk more about those things i mean of course if something happens we will address it so for the new people who are listening who have just sort of enjoyed the more serious tone of what we're doing i certainly invite you to stick around once we start talking sports and for my sports guys hey man i'm coming i'm i'm me you know i'm gonna get back to what we like to do but let me say this i really appreciate you guys listening, and I just can't let all of these things go on around me and not comment. 
Now, again, if the games were underway, then yes, we would get into some of those things. But because they aren't, we have the availability and the time to look into other things that are affecting our world. And so I'm a renaissance man of sorts. <laughs> so I, I will uh, touch on these things from time to time. You can, it's up to you to decide if I know what the hell I'm talking about. If you can relate to what I'm saying. But I'll say this to say this to all the fellas out there who are fathers. Happy Father's Day. I am not a father. I have two dogs. But they are more like, they don't listen to me. So it's not, not a father figure to them. I'm just like an enabler. It's like, like, like I have some, some kibble fiends in here and all they want to do is eat and go outside whenever they want to go outside and they want to find a comfortable spot. So that's, you know, so that's not a father figure thing that I, I feel. But, but I bring that up because I posted this on YouTube. It was a tribute that I did to my late father. My, and if, if you've been listening for a while, uh, especially on KTSU Sports Talk, you know that my father has come up quite a bit. No, no secret how big of an influence he's been on my life. Well, in 1979, he did an album called Who Killed the Dreamer? And what I did was it was it, and it literally was an album. Wasn't on eight track, pre-CD. Wasn't even on cassette. It was on an album and a, L- a LP. And so what I did is I got a track off of that, crackles and all, and uh, I put it on YouTube. So people and I've been so touched and I've felt so good about the fact that some people have been able to relate to and he connected with people forty years later. Man, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's wonderful though. And so I did that in memory of my, my father. And now he can be immortalized. So forever and ever, he's on the interweb and on YouTube. So you guys can check that out. Who killed the dreamer? Debo Wade. That's not his real name, but that's the name that we knew him by. Well, not we. I mean, I knew his name. But that's the name a lot of people knew him by. Debo Wade. D-E-B-L Wade. Who killed the dreamer? So if you get a chance, you want to check that out. If you want some heaviness. And just to put it in context, what it, the poetic is, it's poetry, but it's an essay too. So I said a poetic essay. It was about uh, getting to the bottom of who killed Martin Luther King. And at the time he made this, the King holiday was not a federal holiday. That came a little bit later on. And uh, he called for the national holiday along with many, many others, Stevie Wonder included. And they got that done in 83. And uh, so that's what that was about. Some of the things resonate really well. It could have been written yesterday. And some things that we, we still have to deal with. I mean, you can hear it. You, you know it. We've been living it the last couple of months in 3D. But other things, of course, didn't age so well. But it's up to you guys to check that out. With that, let's get into some Headlines. And headlines, uh, well, you know what? There was a noose found in the garage of the working garage of NASCAR driver Bubba Wallace. Now, I recognize Bubba Wallace for the He Got Game segment. That happened last episode. Talked about how he stood up and said no more Confederate flags at NASCAR events. And they did it. They accommodated him. But you knew, you knew 
It was going to be backlash. And, of course, there was a backlash in a number of ways at Talladega. He came in 14th. He was in it. He was in as, as I think he was like fourth down the stretch with maybe 15 laps, 12 laps to go. And he was running low on fuel. And then they had the overtime finish. Now, for my NASCAR folks, you know what it is. For the non-NASCAR folks, you're not going to care. <laughs> but I'll say this. Um, he was in the mix. And uh, so let's get back to what happened. A noose was found in his garage. And one of his crew members found it. He didn't find it. So what happened was it was reported. And NASCAR just went ballistic. This happened last night, and they are trying to combat racism in NASCAR. Now, they have the longest road to hoe. They have a long way to go to eradicate that type of mentality from the sport of NASCAR. But I will give them all the credit in the world for trying. So what happened? With, uh, so you knew Bubba would face pushback. And not, I'm sure I would not want to read his social media. I, I would be terrified to read it and nobody can really understand in modern day sports no one can really understand what this man is going through and the pressure he he's the only full-time african-american driver so there's no way we can relate to the pressure that he feels because when he goes in down pit road a pit road it's just him it's not too many others that look like him you knew there was going to be pushback there was a, a someone rented a plane and flew the Confederate flag over Talladega and it said defund NASCAR. So again, this is a, this is going to happen in, in with all of these changes, the couple of steps we take forward, they're going to be people who push back and push back hard, resistant to change. And what was cool about it, even after the race, I think he finished 14th. Like I said, he was in the mix. He was up to fourth. He was running well, ran out of gas, or ran, you know, ran out of gas. And then they had a yellow caution flag come out, and he was able to finish 14th. But he had a group. I don't know if he brought them there or he was made aware that that group was there, um, but a group of African Americans from Atlanta went to their very first NASCAR race. And that's sort of, I'm in some ways, burying the lead there. 5,000 fans were allowed to attend. Ticket purchasing public fans of NASCAR were allowed to enter the stadium. So they did have 5,000 fans there. But among those were a number of African-Americans who had seen NASCAR for the first time. And it felt so good to see that. And it was really good how NASCAR came to Bubba Wallace's uh, defense and to protect him and unite around him. Richard Petty came to the track for the first time that he, he drives for Richard Petty uh, racing Richard Petty number 43 car from back in the day STD. I think it was the, uh, uh, I better get that right. But STD in a different way, not, not, not STD the way many folks know it. I think it was STD, the oil additive or whatever. Is that STD? Yeah, maybe it is STD. The blue and red car of Richard Petty. Anyway, he, a legend in NASCAR, he owns the team in which uh, Bub, uh, Bubba Wallace drives. He drives for that the Richard Petty team. Richard Petty came, gave him a big hug. Bubba was really emotional. And it's easy to be 
saying it's easy to say, oh, y'all, he's just, you know, he's been emotional the last three weeks. But again, you cannot imagine what this guy is going through. So that's the that went on today, and that was a big, big deal. So NASCAR has a ways to go, but so far, the powers that be have been very outspoken, very direct, and very demonstrative and quick in their actions and trying to make change in NASCAR. What I hope comes from this, because one thing about being good in NASCAR, you can't just be a good driver. You got to have a good car, a good team, a good crew, good technology. You have to have sponsors to have all of that. So I'm hoping that some high-profile African-American sponsorships come his way. Maybe some folks can fund him and support him so he can move up the ranks. So let's hope. Let's hope that happens for Bubba Wallace. Also, in the world of sports, Dak Prescott, he did sign the franchise tender. or He will or has. And so he will make at least $31 million this season under the franchise tag. He has until July 15th to sign a long-term deal. If not, if he doesn't sign a long-term deal with the Cowboys, he will have to play one. Now, I say that like, oh, Poor fella, he'll have to play for $31 million. But you know what? The name of the game in football is guaranteed money or and length of a deal. You need you need years on that deal. And you need that big signing bonus, money that you know you have. So uh, we'll see what happens with Dak. But I told people they, they were doing stories every day about Dak Prescott. You know he was going to sign the franchise tender. You know that, you know that man was not going to walk away. From $31 million. And I think by when it's all said and done, he'll have a long-term deal. So that was much ado about nothing. Same thing with Jamal Adams, which I mentioned a little bit earlier. So, you know, much more of the same in the NFL. Other thing, Major League Baseball, still no deal. They probably won't come back. I don't think a lot of people care. I mean, we in Houston. We can let it ride for a little bit. <laughs> we can let this thing ride out because we really never did delve in depth to the Yankees. So what happened was they are going to have the commissioner's office is going to have to reveal the redacted portions of a letter sent out about the Yankees cheating. So apparently, which Enos Cabell said on this podcast and on KTSU Sports Talk, there were other teams involved. Astros weren't the only ones. We'll find out. But they wanted to protect the Yankees. So, And I, I told people all along the Astros were the sacrificial lambs. And once they saw the massive pushback from everybody, they said, well, we're not going to do this again. We are not going to out anybody else and really tarnish our game any more than the Astros already have. That's why you got the little slap on the wrist for the Boston Red Sox and the redacted letter to the New York Yankees. So, again, you know, it's all craziness from MLB and the Astros are the scapegoats and the whipping boys. So if you don't play, we can ride this thing out. We can ride it out. No no problem at all for us, for the Astros fans. So, yeah. But again, you want to see some baseball and Justin Verland is not getting any younger. But it would have been interesting. I mean, I think a lot all the momentum and the steam heading into baseball, it just died out for a lot of reasons. And even with a contracted season if they get one underway it's not quite the same neither uh, is it for the nba guys have to notify the league by june 24th whether or not they'll come into the bubble we're starting to see a couple guys trevor reza is not going we are seeing 
Bertrands from Bertans, Bertans from Washington. He's not going. There'll be others. So we'll have to see if this thing goes. I, I mean, let's see. Let's see what happens because there are a lot of discussions behind the scenes on who is going to go, who's not, why they aren't going, whether it's COVID or the fight for racial equality, whatever it is. They're trying to work that out now. We'll know more in a couple of days. Speaking of which, I will be doing a number of podcasts. I'll be working them more frequently here in the coming weeks. So I start to, I start to make plans to say, let me check in more often with my boy D-Wade. Because we'll be doing it. Uh, now, I want to do this. Before we talk to Kalina, I want to bring in Kalina, talk to Kalina. And I want to go back and play uh, a Why We Kneel. Why We Kneel was a segment we started um, back. In, well, she created the idea. She came up with the idea, started it, didn't finish it. She'll go into that in the interview. But it was about why Colin Kaepernick was kneeling to clarify, to put a face a verbal face on a podcast, audio podcast, but a face and a life to the stories in the headlines. And it was a really, really good segment. So we are going to listen to that. And then we're going to transition into our conversation with Kalina. You're tuned into the sports talk with Devin Wade podcast on any platform. You get your podcast. Feeling the chilling moments that led to a police officer wow. shooting now. me. Ultimately, wow. is to bring Please, awareness and make people. Colin Kaepernick kneeling to protest it's social injustice and police, get yet unsigned by any say, NFL team. He's fired. He's fired. Why we kneel. On April 29th, 2017, at 11 p.m., Bulk Springs Police responded to a call reporting several underage kids drunk walking around at a party. When officers arrived, partygoers fled, allegedly from the sound of gunshots. Many people left by car. Officer Roy Oliver attempted to stop a car he claimed was backing into the street, quote, towards the officers in an aggressive manner. Oliver fired five shots from his AK-15 rifle into the car, hitting the passenger in the head and killing him. That passenger's name was Jordan Edwards. After the incident, Oliver also claimed he felt his partner's life was in danger. Body cam footage later revealed the car was, in fact, moving forward, not backward, and officer's partner testified that he did not feel in danger. Oliver was fired May 2, 2017, and on May 5th, he was charged with murder. Oliver turned himself in and was released on $300,000 bail. On August 20, 2018, Oliver went to trial. After five hours of deliberation, the jury found him guilty of murder, and he was sentenced to 15 years in prison. His lawyers planned to appeal. Jordan Edwards was 15 years old. He had a bright football career, and he is why we kneel. For more content, go to WaysWordProductions.com. How are you? Devin, thanks for having me back on. Well, look, let's face it. I guess you have this this open invitation, so you know whenever you have something to say, you say, okay, I yeah. have a lot. You'll text me usually and say, I have a lot to say about that. And then I know, <laughs> okay, well, it's time to get Kalina on again. But, yeah, it really has been a lot going on. And because the show transcends just sports, and obviously 
social issues have bled into the world of sports in unprecedented ways these days. Uh, it's easy to have someone who's not the most avid sports fan on the show. So how have you been doing with all of this? This is a, a fundamental change in our society. And uh, a lot of folks in sports are, are on the cutting edge of that. What do you what do you think about what's going on these days? Oh, man. <laughs> when I, we started in 2020, this is not where I thought we would be. <laughs> and on the one hand, like that, this is great. I think that a lot of we're kind of purging out things in our culture and that needs to happen. On the other hand, I'm tired and it's just like <laughs> We're not even halfway through the the year yet. I don't know how to handle this. (laughs) And it's tough. It's really tough mentally for a lot of folks. Not only you bring in the the racial injustice, but in addition to that, the economic uncertainty of, of the results of the pandemic, which is the world's number one story uh, with the coronavirus. This will define the rest of our lives. However it goes. Yeah, a hundred percent. You like, regardless of whether you get it, whether you don't, whether there's a vaccine tomorrow, the mental and emotional toll that it's going to take on people, especially these kids. I, I saw somewhere it said Zoomers, the the small ones, not the um, the Gen Z kids, but the ones after them. They're called Zoomers now. Okay, you know that's that's pretty. I mean, that's a massive cultural shift. Yeah, and I think we'll see it in the way we work, the way we communicate. I think people will start to work more remotely. In a lot of ways, it probably will be a little bit more isolating, but it'll be just a different existence for a lot of people moving forward as we see how we can incorporate technology into our everyday lives in a way that makes a lot more sense than some of the things we do. Yeah, 100%. So you were on the cutting edge with a segment that we did a couple years ago we started it didn't didn't continue for very long but you came up with the idea and i want to give you props for this kalina came to me and said hey i have an idea let me run this by you and we went to torches tacos and you said this is what i want to do i want to talk about why we kneel because you were someone who when colin kaepernick was blackballed by the nfl you said, no, nah, you know, no, I'm going to boycott. I'm not going to support the NFL and I'm not going to watch my Texans or whatever until they do right by Colin Kaepernick. And you said, well, hey, this is the reason why he was kneeling. And these are the reasons why we kneel sort of in conjunction with him. Yeah, I mean, I because I think at that point you well, we had been talking, you and I, about how like that it just wasn't feasible for you to boycott like you have a sports show. And so you need to be watching these things. And I like we could sort of see the boycott waning or it's not getting as much talk on in the media. And so I said, well, I'm still doing it. And I don't want people who are boycotting to feel alone. I want them to remember why it is that we're doing what we're doing and why Colin did what he did. And so we came up with why we kneel. And, yeah. uh, and, and it really resonated for a lot of people. What did you learn in those five or six editions of that that you did? What did you learn as you kind of worked through that process? I began to see a very strong pattern in how the police deal with, and I'm using deal with very specifically, African-American men and African-American people, honestly. There 
was and is a complete disregard for humanness. And I saw that over and over and over again in my research. And part of that exercise of presenting why we kneel was to make sure that I don't become hardened of heart, that I don't, so that I don't become numb to hearing these stories. So it's one thing to hear a snippet on the news and and then at the time, they're just going to go right past it. But to delve into what this person's life was like before something happened, then almost always it was something really, really dumb. It wasn't something that needed to have excessive force. It wasn't something surely that needed to be pulled, a gun needed to be pulled out or somebody to be shot or somebody to be killed. And these people had lives, full and complete lives. I, and then I also wanted to show what happened to the police officers afterward. I think it's really it was really important at the time to show that there are no consequences or very little consequences and no accountability. And I think that you're seeing that, I mean, you've, everybody's always seen that, but you're seeing that more and more now. That's what's coming up now. It's one thing to tell these people's stories. It's a totally other thing to hold these people accountable and responsible for their actions. The sad part to me is that although you had done several, there were so many more names on that list that you were planning to do. We didn't get a chance to do those. But now you even just this year, you get to add to that list. Ahmaud Arbery and of course, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. I mean, and, and the list kind of goes on and on. It's, it's in a way it's overwhelming, but I think it was important to point out these things. And even in the context of why Colin Kaepernick was kneeling, I thought it was a, a great tie-in. And I think it still is. When you saw the call for Black Lives Matter again and, and people waking up and getting involved with it again, did you feel like vindicated? Like, well, I was ahead of the curve. I, I knew I was doing something right at the time. And it, did you feel like, wow, we were really on that? Honestly, to be honest, all of this really hit me hard this year. It made me, like everyone else, upset and enraged and sad and depressed. And it, it was a while before I even put the connection. Probably I saw it on the news about Colin Kaeper Kaepernick. And I said, oh, my gosh, <laughs> we did do this. We did produce this segment and we talked about it. And at the time, people, you know, all of the hype around it was going away but this is why you don't give up. Like, and I want to apologize straight away. I got really busy with work. I couldn't complete it. But it's that idea and that reason why you keep pushing so that it's always in front of people. Are, are we going to pick that up? Are, we gonna, are you going to do those again <laughs> moving forward? I mean, not to put, and really not, honestly, not to even put you on the spot. I mean, is it something that, because again, I learned, I will say this, I, you know, you did the research on your own. You wrote the pieces and you recorded the pieces on your own. And I learned things about all of those people that I didn't know that, you know, I knew the names of course, but you, you don't know some of the background and the context of, of the entire incident. And like I said, these were real people. So yeah, is that something that you would want to do again? Yeah, definitely. It's something that I would be really interested in pursuing again, especially if people want to hear it. I really would like to focus in on what it is, what what's triggering these events and have to happen 
Yeah, so if people want to hear it, I'd love to produce it again. Yeah, and, and I think, like I said, now the the focus is, okay, how do you galvanize the, the movement? And I've been asking a lot of the people who've been on, how do you move forward with this as we get close to election time? I know, I mean, to talk about def- defunding police, I think that's a term that they should not use because it's a it can be used against you without providing proper context for what a lot of people want. A lot of people just want to divert some of those resources to other things in the community that would alleviate some of the workload for police. Right, exactly. I think there's, unfortunately, a lot of education that one needs to gain in order to understand what that phrasing means. And I know lots of people, I've had to have conversations with a lot of people about it, you know, thinking that it means abolishing the police. And those two terms they do exist in in the ether, but they're completely different situations. So, yeah, I think all of these buzzwords, um, even Black Lives Matter, that's something that we still, how many years later, have to define for people. These things can be expanded upon and delved into so that we're all really educated about what it is that we're saying, what it is that we're hearing around us. Now, I know you told me you've been sort of exhausted around the the conversations of race because a lot of your friends, for a lot of your friends, I don't, I don't know, you, if you're not the their only African-American friend, <laughs> you are the one that they feel most comfortable coming to to ask these sorts of things. Hey, what can I do? Like, how, how have you been dealing with that? Because I know a lot of folks have turned to you uh, and asked, you know, your opinion on these things. Yeah, um... <sighs> I realized pretty early on, like, oh, these conversations are really going to start draining me. So a big thing is I had to start setting boundaries. Like, it, it really was a matter of, okay, after this friend, nobody else can ask me questions for free. And I'm serious about it, too. We, if you want to consult, consult me and all of my knowledge and intelligence – then I want you to start paying. Let's go. <laughs> so, so, but what are, what are some of the questions you've gotten from this? I think from what you've told me, I'm s- sort of shocked and not so much shocked by some of the things, some of the, the questions. So it can be as general as, so what do you think about these protests I've gotten questions about why are people protesting? I've had really in-depth conversations about what does protest look like and how should we go about it so that we can invoke change? And how do we even invoke change? Similar to what you were talking about. So great, now we're in the streets. So what does this look like on paper? What does this look like in law or in my relationships with people? course i've had conversations about what does it mean for that black lives matter what does it mean for defunding the police what's the difference between black lives matter the movement and the phrase black lives matter so a lot of just different situations like that and then my own personal experiences of course you know i'm half black half asian and so people want to hear how my specific experience fits in with the greater narrative I don't know if people have come to me so much with questions, but just to to have conversations. And I just think it's about recognizing, first and foremost, the humanity is so deeply ingrained in us as Americans that it's so hard to get to the root of why you feel the way you feel. We all, in some ways, have to reprogram and deprogram ourselves 
and start over again because again this is this is 400 years old so you know i I always send them to jane elliott the the blue-eyed brown-eyed experiment and uh, again i think more than anything you don't almost you almost don't have to overthink it that's a human being if you can't see what they did to george floyd and not be moved it's about you and your humanity and and that's sort of I, I think that it that's the simple thing. If you just see black people as humans, <laughs> I, don't, yeah. I, I just think that that you have to start there and really want to know. Now we see that it, I mean it's in our face. We have to face this because it's going to ruin America if not. And like you say, what a lot of what I'm receiving are very nuanced things and recognizing that everybody's in different places in their journey of understanding the situation. Of course, I, you know, I'm still on a, my own personal journey of understanding and educating myself. So yeah, we have some people that are, they need to start from, you know, level one. We are human beings. People are people, but then, you know, also understanding. So yes, they're people, but a whole race of people are not lying for 400 years like that. We, there is no conspiracy here of like we're trying to overtake the white man by lying to people. These things are happening and they're real. There are lots of different sides of this situation and I'm trying to touch all of them with different folks. And try to meet them where they are. Huh? Yeah, 100%. Mm-hmm. Well, like I said, it, with corona going on and I mean everything is in upheaval, we'll have to figure out what goes on, what's going to happen uh, moving forward and what's going to happen with sports moving forward here in the next couple of uh, weeks and months to see uh, what's your, your gut feeling when we, how many, how much sports will we have moving forward? Look, if, if <laughs> I'm monitoring what's happening in Houston, Texas, and if that is any indication, we'll be opening up all the stadiums and we'll have <laughs> full of people. All, anybody who wants to go and wants to risk getting coronavirus, they'll be there. You know, it's very disheartening to see how quickly we're opening, how fast we're moving. And so I can imagine that a lot of these organizations are wanting to get something open pretty soon. Yeah, it looks like I, I don't. I'm a little bit more pessimistic this week with the numbers that are coming out with different programs uh, testing uh, testing positive. We, Clemson had with all the positive tests. University of Houston, University of Texas, programs all over the country are having huge chunks of players testing positive. So I'm a little bit pessimistic about it. But like I said, I look forward to hearing from you. And really, really soon, uh, we hope to get more of the why we kneel segment as we move into football season yeah i i would love to see that happen for sure how can folks reach out to you on social media well i am on instagram at so cali s-o-c-a-l-l-y i'm also on twitter at so cali underscore s and uh yeah i've been seeing you a little bit more active on twitter doing your thing yeah, I'm trying to be. I mean, ever since you you basically forced me onto Twitter, <laughs> now I'm I'm hooked. Hasn't it been everything I promised you it'd be? Twitter is a dumpster fire, Devin. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, we certainly appreciate it. Look forward to you hearing from you really, really soon. All right, thanks, Devin. Sports Talk with Devin Wade wants to thank our sponsor, Kofi Bankus and CoBank Homes. The vision at CoBank Homes is simple, and it stems from the belief that clients can trust CoBank to guide them to realize one of, if not the single largest investment decision they will ever make. 
their home. CoBank simply looks to build lifelong relationships through service. They do this by using faith, knowledge, and technology to guide clients through the process of achieving their real estate goals. Be it buying, selling, or investing in real estate, contact Kofi at 832-757-7950. That's 832-757-7950. CoBank Homes through Keller Williams. Sports talk with Devin Wade, although <laughs> a little light on the sports talk. But it will get a little bit better now that we have our guy, E-Rob 50, Eddie Robinson, a, uh, what, 10, 11-year veteran of the NFL. And, of course, uh, met him when he played for the Oilers. And then he did some television for ESPN. I mean, he's a worldly guy. He'll tell you. Just his taste in sports alone. But nonetheless, welcome back. I want to remind you guys, if you have music you'd like us to play on our podcast, hit us up at music at wadeswordproductions.com. That's music at wadeswordproductions.com. Please make it radio edit, and we'll play a snippet at the halfway point and an entire track or an extended portion of a mix at the end of the show. Without further ado, let's get into our conversation with Eddie Robinson. How you been, partner? Oh, everything's going good. Uh, like you said, hey, definitely, definitely not normal circumstances for anybody. But hey, sometimes you have to get outside of your comfort zone and comfort level, and that's how you get that real growth. So, looking for for big things for the second half of 2020 and into 2021. That's that's my thought. That's my take. What's your take? Well, hey man, I'm just trying to live, bro. <laughs> between between COVID and folks not wearing masks and the numbers spiking in this area, man, I'm just trying to trying to see 2021. But you know, so far so okay. You know, what I mean, we're making it, and, and it's been a tumultuous time. Now, you and I have had a lot of talks off the air talking about a lot of the social issues and racial issues of course you're from new orleans you went to hbcu you have a a rich experience in all of this and so when the george floyd incident first of all what's your your thoughts on what's going on in america these days because it's kind of crazy seeing some things i never thought i'd see well, I, I think, you know, every generation has issues that they have to deal with in their lifetime, whether it's uh, social issues. You know, some generations have to deal with World War Two, World War One, some the Civil War. So, you know, I think this is just the issues that, you know, we have to push forward on our generation. When I say we, I say, you know, black, white, brown America, everybody, not just black America. But, you know, uh, yeah, it's definitely some unsettling times. And I think everybody has an opinion. And I think what you have to do in this type of situation is you look at things that you have in common 
and stop focusing on the, the issues that divide you. And so I think, you know, a lot of Americans have a lot of things in common. I think it's still a great country with a lot of great people. And of course, you have some people who are not so great. That's just how it works, you know. But I think in the long run, um, I think uh, the country will be better. And I think the, the plight of the um, Black American will be better also. And I think that's that's what we're kind of looking for. And I think we're moving in that direction. So. One of the things that I've asked all of my guests lately and, and since the George Floyd incident, and, and I did an entire podcast just on that, 99% of the black men that I know have had an, a negative experience with the police. Now, now, a lot of those, not every experience has been horrible. It's not been horrific. It's not been traumatic. But everybody has at least one story. Do you have in your in your thought process, if you, as you recollect, is this something that happened? Have you had that kind of experience in your life, especially as a, a pro athlete? I mean, quite honestly, I haven't had a horrific experience. Um, I mean, my my interaction with police, you know, they haven't hasn't always been good. Maybe I didn't think I deserved that speeding ticket, or maybe I didn't feel like I should have been pulled over. Um, but I was probably one of those people who was always on the on the mode of the mantra of you know if I can comply and move on with my life as fast as possible, then that's going to be my approach. And so that's that's always worked out pretty good for me. But, you know, at the same time, I realized that everybody hasn't been fortunate to be in my situation where they've been able to kind of de-escalate a situation or haven't met that officer who has, you know, totally humiliated them, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, while I can, I can name four or five instances where I felt like I wasn't treated exactly fairly. I mean, I don't have anything um, that that even compares to the type of things that you're seeing on television on a regular basis and not just the ones that end up in, in the fatality of the person that's being pulled over, usually, you know, the black American, but, you know, just in general from the person, you know, just feeling like they've been uh, totally mistreated and abused by police. Now, you also have a son, uh, and uh, I know that, of course, every parent has that concern. Uh, how? What are those conversations like with your son? Because, again, he's in that generation that's really, they're out there in the streets. They're protesting. They're, they're making change happen right before our eyes. Well, what are you telling him as he walks through these uh, these crazy times? Yeah, well, I have three sons, you know, two that two have license and drive, and one is, uh, has a permit, so, you know, he drives with the parents, so... Yeah, I mean, I've definitely had that conversation with them of how they should act and how they should treat a traffic stop. And fortunately, I, I say fortunately, I've been pulled over in the vehicle with them in the car with me. So they saw how I acted and the things that I did, how I tried to, you know, make the officer feel comfortable and try to, you know, de-escalate the situation before anything you know, would happen. So I think, um, I mean, it's unfortunate in America where we have to have these conversations with our kids, but at the same time, we have to have these conversations with our kids. And when I say our kids, I, I mean, you know, mostly the people of you know, black and brown color skin. And so that's something that you have to deal with, you have to be prepared for. And I think it's just, it's part of the social skills that you have to have. And maybe, you know, at some point um, we'll get better and we're going to get closer to that point. And hopefully that comes a lot sooner than later. But if, if you look at what the, our forefathers have to deal, deal with, and you're talking two, three hundred years ago and then through the civil rights movement in the 50s and the 60s and what we're dealing with now, 
it's getting progressively better, but you know, Martin Luther King talked about the intoxicating drug of gradualism. So I think what you're seeing now is young people and people my age and just people in general, both black and white are, are tired of this, you know, well, it'll gradually get better. Just be patient. And I think the, you know, the American black man is done with the being patient. It's like, you know, it needs to happen now. It should have happened years ago, but it has to happen now today. And so I champion that cause. It's like we can't wait any longer. And you know, injustice anywhere needs to be rooted out right now. And I think people need to speak up to say, hey, what side of the vehicle you're on? You're on this side or you're on the other side. And I think you can no longer be silent because that, that voice of silence is a voice of compliance where you're not, you know, you're not speaking out against it. So you let those people who are for racism have a louder voice because there's no opposition. And I know I know you are active with all your sons, but I, I particularly focus on uh, your son who just went away to college last fall at North Carolina A&T, the college freshman. That is the time where minds open up and they grow in, in mm -hmm. ways that like before. That, so that was the, the point of emphasis there. And, and speaking to that, when you think about the response of the pro athletes these days and, and the NFL and some of the – well, you see Roger Goodell, some of the owners. What are your thoughts on – the sports world and the NFL world, uh, you know, really being at the forefront with everybody else on this thing. Yeah, I think it's beautiful. I mean, I think, um, you know, athletes are in a unique position. You know, I never was one to fall into that mantra of Charles Barkley that I'm not a role model. I think when you're given so much as an athlete and not that athletes don't work hard. I mean, we, we work our butts off at the same time, you've been afforded a lifestyle. You, you know, you're almost, like a gladiator. Put your body on the line, you put your life on the line, but you're rewarded 10 times over. You live a lifestyle that any kid would love to live. I mean, so, I mean, too much is given, much is expected. So I think much is expected of athletes, even, even more so now because the salaries are so high, you put up on so much of a pedestal through social media. I mean, you're, you're like a rock star. And so, but that standpoint, you you have to almost you, you have a duty to speak out against things that are affecting this country and this nation and the people that you represent. You know, it's like Muhammad Ali would, would talk about, hey, I can't be comfortable being on this yacht and traveling around the world and being Muhammad Ali when I see black people in my community who are being mistreated and being segregated and being beat down. It's like I can't live and feel comfortable when I know other people are being taken advantage of. So I think now you're seeing, you know, the black American athlete really flexing his muscles to say, hey, you know what? I'm not going to stand for this. It's just because I've quote unquote made it and I've had financial riches and I'm at a point in my life that others can dream about. I'm not going to ignore that little black kid in the neighborhood who's being mistreated because that kid could have easily been me. You know, if I would have had one you know, dislocation of the knee or, or one, I didn't make the cut in high school, that kid could be me. And so I think that's what you're seeing now. And I think it's just wonderful that athletes are kind of banding together and speaking up and realizing that they have a real big voice.
Yeah, we've seen a lot of guys, uh, a lot of coaches and some owners, like I said, and even Roger Goodell do a 180 on this thing. Uh, what do you think of, like, Bill O'Brien? Yeah, what a, what, a difference, what a difference a couple months make, right? <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. I mean, and, and, and I want to get into that, too, you know, but, like, what do you make of, like, Bill O'Brien? Bill O'Brien, is, and this is what I try to guard against. I try to guard against saying, oh, no, nah, he just – oh, those are just words. He's just doing something because he – uh, the pressure of the moment. But I, I want to get away from being like that and saying, okay, well, maybe he did wake up. And then I have to ask myself, have I have I changed on an issue over time? Have I grown? What issue in my life did I, I thought one way about and then I've grown out of that? And so we're try to give some people the benefit of the doubt. What are your thoughts on people who've never really got it before, at least trying to get it now? Well, I, I don't think, um, I mean, this, this isn't a problem that black America can fix alone. You need white America to be, you know, they've been complicit in the problem, so they have to, they have to be part of the solution. And so, yeah, if, if black America could end racism, we would have ended it 400 years ago. <laughs> so it's obviously not anything that we can end alone. So you have to have, you know, white America, the conservatives and the liberals, and, and really, it's the it's the liberals who don't speak out, you know, the ones who are the conscientious conscientious objectors who they don't agree with it, but they don't say anything against it. So by you not speaking out against it and you're acting like it doesn't exist when you know it does, I mean you're giving the people who are adamantly for it and, and against having any type of unity amongst uh different colors of people, then you give them a platform to keep doing what they're doing. So when you have a Bill O'Brien or those guys who have changed course, I think you have to look at it and say, hey, you know what, I'm going to give you a chance to show me, not tell me, but show me where you are on these issues. And the same thing with the NFL. I mean, for the NFL to truly say that they kind of got it, well, yeah, you can donate money, but when you have billions, that's the easiest thing to donate. So what you really have to do, and and I think it kind of starts with, with like Michael Jenkins said, it starts with Colin Kaepernick. I mean, he was the person who put his life and his career on the line. I mean, to play football has been a dream that these kids have been having since, and for me, it was since I was eight years old. So for me to be 28 and knowing that once you take these years away, you can never give them, get them back. And it's a young man's game. And if you play more than seven, eight years, I mean, you're totally blessed. You know, I played 11. And so in the middle of that, at, at year seven, for me to say, hey, I'm willing to give up my salary, prestige, and the rest of everything for a cause of other people who are lower than me on the social economic scale, merely because they look like me and I understand their plight and I'm going to sympathize to it. I mean, I think that's a huge deal. And so, you know, I think we talked about it once before. I was like, when Colin Kaepernick first, first knelt down, I said, yeah, he's getting a flag now. I said, his just reward won't be granted to him to maybe a decade or 20 years later, similar to Muhammad Ali. And Muhammad Ali said, I'm not going to Vietnam. And when he spoke up for the injustice among black people and changed his name from Cassius Clay, I mean, people hated Muhammad Ali. Nobody loved him. White folks was hating Muhammad Ali. They cursed him. They wouldn't even say his name. They would still call him Cassius Clay. And so now he's an American hero once he got older and once he died and he's leading the Olympic parade and all that type of stuff. But during, during the time, George Foreman was the American hero because he was waving the, the American flag. And Muhammad Ali was the person who was representing, you know, the movement of the young people. And he was considered an outcast. And so I think it's the same thing with Colin. I mean, he was an outcast with this happened. But when, it, when he first did it, 
But now, 10, 20 years later, he's going to be that symbol of that first person who stood up to say, hey, yeah, I'll, I'll put what I have on the line for somebody else. And that's a real big thing for him to do. And I think we have to remember from the NFL until they can say people can protest how they want to. So if you want to kneel during the uh, national anthem, then that's OK for you to kneel during the national anthem if that's how you choose to protest. And if it becomes too big of a problem, just don't play the national anthem before games. That's a, at one point. They didn't play the national anthem before sporting events. That's kind of a new event that just started in the last 20 or 30 years. So if, if we have to go back to, hey, we don't want to offend anybody, just don't play the national anthem. Just kick it off and play ball. So, <laughs> so maybe they get to that. But if the NFL is going to have the same policy of guys can't kneel or you're going to lose your job or this or that, then the NFL really hasn't got it. If they don't give Colin Kaepernick an honest chance to play in the NFL again, if he wants to, then they still really haven't gotten it. So we'll see what happens. Some people say that Colin shouldn't come back, that he should stay. He shouldn't bail the NFL out. By coming back, he would be bailing the NFL out, saying, well, oh, yeah, they, you know, now the NFL can say to themselves, we've changed, we've grown, look at what we've done, we brought him back. Some people think, think that his voice is more powerful on the outside. What do you think? Well, think you, do you think a, he think... should play? Because I, I did a poll question on the last episode, and I asked the people, should he come back or should he not? And it, it was pretty split on uh, whether people thought he should come back or not. And I can give arguments to both sides of that, but I think this is a Colin Kaepernick decision. I would support, if he wanted to come back and play, I would 100% support that. If he didn't, I would support that also. But I know as an athlete how hard it is to make it to the NFL and how rewarding it is to play each and every one of those games. I mean, it's just going to practice and walking into the facility you don't ever take it for granted because there's thousands of people who would love to do what you're doing. So for me to ask this guy, uh, hey, man, don't play anymore so you can still do this. The movement isn't about Colin Kaepernick. He lit the fire. So if we as the millions of Americans and the millions of you know white folks also here in America, if we can't push this ball down the field after Colin has started it and put his life on the line, then shame on us. We shouldn't ask Colin to give up the rest of his potential NFL career just because, you know, as a signal of the, sig signal of the movement, we can hold the NFL accountable and Colin Kaepernick can still play football, in my opinion. And so I don't have a problem with him coming back. And, and if he has that dream, if he wants to play and that itch hasn't been scratched, then, yeah, he should come back and play. I mean, that's why guys retire and come back out of retirement. Look at Gronkowski. I mean, the NFL is like an intoxicating drug. You can never get enough. I think it's one of those things where you – there's nothing else that's going to compare to that being an NFL player on the football field. It's, it's just one of those things until you've done it, you don't want to take it for granted. And if you get a chance to do it again, I mean, if I could run through the tunnel and play again tomorrow, I would. <laughs> but I can't. You know? right, but right. It's, it's one of those things that you never just give up on like that if, if you can still do it. And if he can still physically do it and he wants to, then, hey, go get it. Why not? Well, I want to shift gears and ask about the other overwhelming thing that society's dealing with these days, uh, COVID. I want to ask you about COVID-19. As it pertains to the NFL, I'll, I'll go NFL first. I'm going to ask you, should they play and will they play an NFL season? Well, I think they should try and play, but I think you have to have some emergency measures in there and some hard break points. If we have to pull the plug, the plug will get pulled. And I think it has to go to safety of the players first, Players, and I say that, players, coaches, and staff, because you have some older coaches, maybe some older trainers, maybe some older equipment managers. 
So I think players, coaches, and staff safety have to be first, and then the safety of the fans. But technically, you can play without the fans, and I think the NFL could make that happen. Wouldn't be ideal, but in in this in this environment, it may be what we have to do. And so um, I don't have a problem with the NFL trying to play. I mean, if you want to test daily and quarantine the players and have a process where if a, a guy is tested positive, then the NFL, you get a roster exemption, and this guy has to sit out, be quarantined for two games until he tested negative. I think that's something that they can do. And even if it means you have to shorten the season so it doesn't go all the way into January or something like that. So I think I think the unfortunate thing would be if, you know, say, for example, you have a Patrick Mahomes who gets COVID and can't play. And then the Kansas City Chiefs lose because Mahomes doesn't play. I mean, those type of things would be unfortunate if the outcome of the game is decided by COVID and not necessarily by who's the best team. You know, so I so think my- that's where it kind of gets tricky. So it's. I mean, it's unprecedented. So I think the response and the answer will be unprecedented. And no matter exactly what you do, people will second guess, well, you could have did it this way and you could have did it that way. So I don't think it's there's a right or wrong way. I think you do it the safe way. And if it ever becomes unsafe, then you have to pull the plug. A couple of things on that. They can't do what the NBA is doing because the numbers are so great. I mean, think about it, all the equipment people, all, it, just everybody involved, the trainers, all of the folks that are involved with a football team, you would have to pay for those folks, and those folks would have to be in a bubble somehow to do it exactly safe. And my other thing is I'm not sure, and I don't know that we know this yet because it, it's so new, what does recovery look like? Okay, everybody says, okay, well, yeah, we have this many recoveries. Does that mean you're 100% back to normal? Because we know that that's not true in a lot of those cases. For a world-class athlete, is that world-class athlete going to be able, like Ezekiel Elliott got it. Is he going to be able to be Ezekiel Elliott? Is he going to, over the long term, is he going to have, because we know that they've had residual effects down the road. There's been respiratory stuff going on. I'm not sure that we know if these guys can come all the way back to where they were. What have you heard about that, and what are your thoughts on that? I think from the standpoint of world-class athletes, I think if anyone can come back at full speed, and if you look at the severity of the cases of most athletes is probably a lot less than the average population. So I think to me, you know, just my non-medical opinion, I think the COVID is kind of like a flu and maybe not even a severe flu. I think some people probably had a, a flu that's more severe than the COVID. But however, because you don't have a way to contain it, then it is kind of spreading throughout the population. So I think that's the biggest thing is that you can't really slow it down. It has to slow itself down. So to answer your question, yeah, I think the athletes can definitely come back and compete at a high level. You know, guys catch the flu and get sickness and get cold. I know guys that, that have been in the training room laying on the table on the IV on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Sunday, they go out and have one of their best games. Yeah, but this ain't this this ain't the flu. You know what I mean? It's it, is, not, it is the flu. No, no. It's, 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 the, no, it's the flu from the standpoint of the severity of it. Now, of course, it can transcend in some people and it develops – a lot worse than the flu, and it actually kills you. But the flu can actually kill you also. Right. But so with young, strong, with, with young, strong athletes, you wouldn't expect that a person would have, unless there's some underlying trigger that it just hits this person and attacks them in such a way. But the same thing with a flu. If you had the flu that attacked the person in such a way where he 
at extreme conditions of the flu, you would hospitalize them. So it's the same thing with the COVID. So I'm not I'm not trying to lessen the effects of the COVID. The biggest thing for the COVID is that you can't really contain it. Like it's it's kind of like everybody can get it. You know, where the flu, you have a lot of people that have been vaccinated who can't get it, and it's kind of it's. But the flu kills a lot of people every year. Well, yeah. Year. So the, the the flu kills between thirty and fifty thousand people over a six seven month period annually. What we've seen yeah. now is a hundred and hundred, uh, nearly one hundred twenty thousand people killed in about three months. So that's a hell of a lot different than regular flu season over time. And then not only that, I worry you worry about things like uh, guys who have uh, family members. Like so now, all of a sudden, I can't imagine a football player with an elderly parent or a grandparent can't play football and then go and see grandpa or grandma or mama in well, some cases. Well, I don't, yes, you know, but, you know, because we know. I mean, that I'm, yeah, but I'm I'm from New Orleans and they had severe cases in New Orleans. So the last time I went down there was over spring break, March 15th. And I, and I went back a week ago, which it was three months later. And so, you know, I talked with my parents on Zoom and on, in person on a regular basis. But yeah, my, my, my mom and my dad and my stepmom are older. So, I mean, I didn't, I didn't go down there. I mean, it just didn't make sense. It's like, why? And so I think it's the same thing. If if you have a four-month football season, you know, September, October, November, December, and if you have parents who usually come to the game, well, hey, Dad, you're going to have to sit out this season. Don't come to the game. I mean, that's just common right. sense. Right. You know what so, I mean, there's, there's certain things that you have to do and sacrifices you have to make, but I think if you have a family that's contained and you have to have those players – on a really strict, hey, stay masked up, go here, go back home, have your family contained. And also, and you have to do the testing on a regular basis and also with the fever. And the good thing about the NFL players, you're seeing each other every day. So the first sign of if you have any type of this, let's go to start, let's get testing and get the quarantine immediately. And I say, I think that's what you have to do. So I think if anybody can pull it off, the NFL can. I mean, because you just bring in, a couple more COVID specialists, you know, you get like two or three people and their job is just to test and maintain the COVID of the entire building on a daily basis. What do you, know, you do? From, what do you do with the older coaches though? Cause you got coaches, 60s, 70s, 60s and 70s. What do you do? Well, I mean, and I think that happened. They, they were talking about that with the whole basketball bubble thing. Too, right, like right. You have some older coaches. So I think those older coaches, they have to make a decision for themselves. It's like, are you older in great health? Or are you older on, and you're a diabetic and you're having trouble with this? Are you, you know, you have a kidney that's, I mean, so you have to make that decision to say, hey, yes, I'm older, but I still want to do this. Or, hey, I'm older, but you know what? I need to sit this one out. And you have to be realistic with yourself. And I think the organizations have to be realistic with that coach. Yeah, so a lot of tough decisions. Not on the college level, a lot different. You are forcing kids who are not getting paid to go out there and take the same kind of risks. What do you think about the college football season? Because, again, if you're saying the NFL may not have fans, that's not a sustainable model for a lot of uh, a lot of universities. What are your thoughts on college football? Well, I think, first of all, college football needs a government bailout. If you're going to bail out banks, airlines, and everything else, why wouldn't you bail out college athletics so kids can try to have some sense of normalcy in their everyday life? I mean, you bail out the businesses, bail out the colleges. And so, yes, those smaller colleges who can't afford testing, can't afford this, can't afford that, then, yeah, you need to pay for that. NCAA or government, you know, you have trillions of dollars, just throw another trillion towards football. 
<laughs> I mean, towards sports and towards athletics. And so, yeah, I mean, I know, you know, my son, he's, of course, he goes to Narcon A&T and they're having a whole protocol of the kids have to get tested before they go. And I'm sure other schools are doing the same thing. And so, I mean, hopefully it'll be a situation similar to how the NFL has to do it. If these kids can stay and contain within themselves. But the biggest thing is when one person has that first sign and you have to be able to you know, quarantine that person immediately and move on. So I think it's going to, it's going to be a touch and go. I mean, I, I, I say try it until it becomes unsafe and don't be afraid to shut it down if you have to. I mean, if, if we get to, if we get to early November and the cases have just, you know, doubled, you know, across the United States and it's like coming back twice as hard. Then I think at that point, the NCAA sports in general will all have to make a decision. I'm more concerned about the players. The fans, to me, I think you have to reduce the number of people that come. I don't know what the plan is, but like I was talking to my dad, he was like, hey, he doesn't feel comfortable going sit in the Superdome, you know, being a 75-year-old diabetic. And I totally understand. I don't feel comfortable taking him to the Superdome <laughs> right, right, to go right. watch, watch the damn things. You know what I'm saying? And so... And so at the same time, so if they if they told me, hey, Eddie, you know what, you have four season tickets, but you can come to game, you know, two, four, six, and eight. I'm cool. If you need to have the Superdome have four and then you space it out with the games that I can come to and I can't go to the other games, then I'm okay with that. To me, that just makes common sense. Or even if you told me I can only come to two games because you're going to have 25% at each game, whatever, however they want to do it, I think any any person with common sense would be okay with that. Like, I'm not expecting to go to the Superdome with 70,000 people all on top of each other. You know, even even if everybody in that is masked up, I think it's just it's just too risky to try and do that. Like, who would, who would want it? Then you got to say, are you going to serve food at the game? Well, yeah, the NFL is definitely going to lose some money. I think right now, if they can have a break-even year, it'll be win-win. But, I mean, a lot of it is on television. So, I mean, I think, you know, is, is football better with fans? Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to play it like that? Absolutely not. But I mean, I, I guess if you want to take a whole year off of sports then especially for the college kids, you know, like, like we're talking about, because do kids get another year of football eligibility or because I mean, it's one of those things. It's, it's a whole lot of different questions. If you start football, play two games and have to cancel the season, that means that all of the kids get an extra year of football, just like they did in the spring sports. So it's, it's kind of. It's one of those things that's unprecedented. I think you have to play it by ear. And you, to me, you always err on safety, not economics. So if it comes to the point where it becomes unsafe, don't be afraid to pull the plug. And I think that's what you're going to see. And if it's, and if the NCAA or the conferences won't do it, I think you're going to have some schools and some ADs and some presidents that are going to say, hey, you know what? I'm at Michigan. You know, we're, we're in this area and we have super high levels of cases we're not playing. So yeah. I think that's what's going to happen. And so we'll, we'll see how it goes, but I, I don't think nobody can really predict to say, how is this going to move forward for 2020? So. Well, and, and I know there's a lot more we can talk about, but I'm going to ask you one last thing before we get out of here. And it goes back to the, the NFL and the new Orleans saints and drew Brees. Uh, what are your thoughts on right. what, on what he said, how in, in his apolo- subsequent apologies, and what do you take? I mean, because obviously a lot happened around him and uh, around him and his name and, and F. Drew Brees and all of that, that stuff that yeah. went on in New Orleans. <laughs> what what are your thoughts about Drew Brees and what, what will that mean for the Saints if there is a football season? 
Well, I, I think it's you know, that's, that's a huge question. I mean, all, all my Falcons fans, you know, that's that's like the rival. Like, oh, what y'all gonna do with Drew Brees? Yeah, <laughs> so I was taking flack from them, and so I think you have to. If if a person makes a mistake, and obviously I feel like everybody can say that what he said and the way he said it, with the confidence in what he said it, in which he said it, it was a mistake. So I think when you have that situation, you know, you have to give a person a chance to make amends from that mistake. Nobody's perfect. And so if it took that knock in the head for him to realize the way racism affects African-Americans on a daily basis, then, hey, that's what it took. But when people start talking about the patriotism of the flag, it's like you're kind of disrespecting Colin Kaepernick and everything that the Black Lives Matter movement was trying to talk about because we're not trying to disrespect the flag. I think, if anything, African-Americans have had the utmost respect for the flag. You know, So when you're talking about you know, my granddad and my dad and my great grandfather fought in World War One and fought, fought in World War Two. Well, you got to remember, in 1940, you had African Americans who were born in 1920 who were also fighting in World War Two. So, if you were born in 1920, you were either the son or the grandson of a former slave. And so, as the son or grandfather of a former slave, to go to Europe and fight for the freedom of the French and the English and the other people that were being um, dominated and controlled by the Nazi political machine army, for you to go over there and fight for their freedoms, knowing that your family is still getting lynched in Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia and still getting mistreated, and that when you go back, you're going to get mistreated also, because this is even before the civil rights, it's still the Jim Crow era. So at that point, you are the ultimate patriot, because... When you say you're fighting for the liberty of America and for the freedoms, it's like, yeah, the black man was fighting for the liberties of America and for the freedoms of the white people, but for not his own freedom. <laughs> so it's like when you get it, when you when you talk about who has the, the right to kneel, if anybody has the right to kneel, the black American has the right to kneel because you didn't get with your forefathers fought for. And I'm talking about these are the sons and the grandsons of former slaves. And it's the same thing if you look at the Vietnam War with, with Muhammad Ali. It's the same thing. You're over there fighting yellow people over at a foreign land, and you don't have the same rights even in the 60s that you're trying to get for the South Vietnamese people. And so it's impossible for you to not realize the patriotism that Black Americans have had throughout their entire process, going back to the, Revol- the Revolutionary War, their entire process here in America. And so it's like a total slap in the face, not only to us, but also to our ancestors. So, I mean, it, it took him, hopefully he realized it and understands it and, and truly believes it. You know, it's kind of like, I was just, I put a little thing on, you know, I, we ride our bicycles every morning. So just like two mornings ago, me and four of my fraternity brothers, we were riding going up the White Oak Trail. And never ever had I been said to good morning that many times by that many white folks. I mean, I've ridden this trail no less than a hundred times. You know what I'm saying? And the good mornings was almost to the point, like, if one more person tell me good morning, <laughs> like, because, you know, you have to respond back. And usually on the trail, you know, it's, it's always a little hand wave and it's kind of a subtle, you know, head nod or whatever like that. But it was like one of those from across the trail, good morning! Good morning! And I guess they saw like the five black guys and it was like, that's the the guy, we got to tell them guys good morning. 
And I was like, man, you have to go back to the 92 Dream Team the last time five guys have been told good morning that many times by white folks, you know. (laughs) And so, but if it's the consciousness and maybe it's kind of catching on to let them understand, like, like, I don't think black folks, we don't need the sympathy of white folks. We just need the equality and not just the pretend equality, the actual equality. Like, let us, Structural, when we go yeah, in our neighborhood, yeah. yeah, when we go in our neighborhood and we want to get a bank loan, let's make sure we get it at the same percentage at the person getting it in Rick Rose. If he's paying 3%, we should be paying 3%. Why don't make us pay 8 Or don't even, not even give us the loan in our neighborhood. So, I mean, we, we know all of the different things, but, you know, hopefully I think Drew, Shannon Sharp kind of hit it on the nail, hit the head on the, the nail a lot. I mean, he had some really, I mean, Drew should retire. You know, his his image is going to be tainted. And I think, I think to some standpoint, you know, he's kind of right. I mean. Well, he came back after as, he had a conversation with Drew and said, I mean, his he kind of did a little bit of a 180 uh, with with Drew. And he, he said he accepted his apology and, and really felt like, you know, that Drew had to be educated and, and given a chance to show that he's changed. He said, you know, what, what he said afterwards is that Drew, essentially, you've made your apology, don't apologize anymore, but go out and display that you are with your African-American brothers in, in this plight. And because, again, all of, because of, I guess he was giving him the, the benefit of the doubt, and, and that's why a lot of, I think, black people were caught off guard, because he has done so much for New Orleans. He did do so much uh, as it pertains to uh, Katrina and COVID in the city of New Orleans, which is, I mean, uh, that's a black city, you know what I mean? So, I, you know, Shannon yeah. kind of did a 180. I don't know. You know, we'll have to see for all of these guys, I guess. Well, I think... To me, you know, when I see all of the billionaires writing a check, um, and, and I make donations to, to different organizations, but to me, I always tell people the biggest donation is my time. You know, it's like if I give you myself, then that's that's a bigger donation than any dollar amount that I can give. And to me, I, it's like if, if you want to win this humanitarian of the year award, you're a billionaire. You can't be a humanitarian because they got people that got nothing that's suffering, and you still got a billion dollars. And I'm not saying you need to give away all billions of your dollars. You know, it's, it's no, I'm not like a socialist that say nobody said, you work hard, hey man, you, you, you earned it and you have more money than other person, so you should enjoy it more. I understand that. But if you tell me I got a billion and I give 50 million, while it's impressive to you and I, because we don't have that, at the same time, that didn't change anything that happened to you from today to tomorrow to the next day. And so, same thing with Drew. To say, oh, well, Drew, is he's been on it. He's been giving money. Well, for Drew to give $5 million when you've been making $25 million a year for the last eight years, then that, I, I'm not impressed by a monetary donation. You know, if you want to go out and actually do something and help the community and, and stuff like that, then to me, that's going to be more impressive. And so, but when you make a statement like you made, it just kind of backs all of that up. And so, I mean, it, it, it erases all of the good, you know what I'm saying? So I'm, I'm kind of like how Shannon was before. I, I definitely appreciate the apology, and we definitely accept the apology. I mean, black folks have been forgiving white folks for hundreds of years. And so at the same time, we're going to forgive you. We're going to absolutely hold you accountable, you know? And so we have to see what Drew does. But at, at some point, hey, I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm past it. I felt, you know, as, as a Thanksgiving ticket holder, been to a lot of different games. I, mean, I think Drew is right at that. Hey, Drew, make it happen this year. 
Are we going with uh, with Taysom? Or we no, going it's with Jameis, man. No. It's, it's Jameis, bro. Don't, don't, come on now. I know you're getting We're not getting on the Taysom versus Jameis. Not yet. I'm cool with either. I'm cool with either one of them. But my, realistically, I was already thinking that this needs to be Drew Brees last year, anyway. You know what I'm saying? Much and it's, and it's not that I'm not a Drew Brees fan. I love Drew Brees. But at the same time, you cannot have that quarterback a year or two too long. You right, know what I'm saying? Right, and we right. and we get and we get into that point where Drew can't throw the deep ball. You get Emmanuel Sanders, because we gotta talk some football. You got Emmanuel Sanders, even if he's open 40 yards down the field, I don't think Drew can give him the ball. So it's like our offense is getting bogged down and it's and it's, you know, a 10 yards or 20 yards or less offense. And once teams figure that out, it makes it just that harder to complete those 20 yards or less plays. And Drew can't stretch the field like that. I mean, I love the I, I love the, the prospect of Jameis leading the Saints, you know, coached by, you know, with a good running game and, and, and coach coaching the system that we have. And so, you know, I think it's it's time for Drew to, to somewhat shut it down regardless. So, I mean, my thing, I don't think you can hold football players as heroes. They're football players. So, man, did he make a mistake? Yes, he tried to correct it. Yes. So I don't think Drew Brees is going to affect the Black Lives Matter movement one way or the other. Let's get the movement going and let's move past it. You know yeah, well, like I said, I mean, we got a lot more to talk about. We just have to start visiting a little bit more frequently because now it's things are starting to ramp up and we're getting closer to what may or may not be a football season or what may or may not be an NBA season. Uh, then we can talk uh, different angles. Hey, man, sports. I'll tell you, if, if there's no football and there's no NBA, just come to my house. Formula One is starting July 5th in, <laughs> in, in Austria. They're doing two races in Austria, then they're going to Hungary, and then they're going to Silverstone in London for two weeks. So, I mean, Lewis Hamilton, he was very outspoken in calling out Formula One and motorsports and telling everyone that, hey, you have to speak out for Black, Black Lives Matter because a lot of the same things that we have here in the U.S., the same things go on with U.K. as far as with Blacks and immigrants and stuff like that. So kudos to Lewis Hamilton for also being one of those, you know, big-time faces of the sport you know, millionaires. So wait a minute, you gonna go? You gonna go across the pond and give props to Lewis Hamilton? Yeah. What about Bubba Wallace? What Bubba Wallace did was really monumental in being the only black racer in NASCAR, getting them to get do away with the Confederate flag at, at uh, NASCAR events. So yeah, that, now that that was pro- very impressive because I when when I heard that I was like, "Woo, man, no Confederate flag." I mean, NASCAR and the Confederate flag—that's just like. That's like like a bumper sticker. You don't come in here unless you got a Confederate flag on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so yeah, I mean, definitely shout out to Bubba Wallace. But Lewis Hamilton is the only black that has ever been in Formula One, and he's a what six-time world champion. He's trying to tie Michael Schumacher with seven. So I mean, I think when I look at who's a giant of the sport. I mean, Lewis Hamilton is that guy. No disrespect to Bubba Wallace. Yeah, Bubba ain't there yet for as far as wins. So, yeah, we'll have to And the Tour de France is still going on, too, in July. So, I mean, it's, it's, we still got, it's still got other sports. This is going to be the perfect time for you to expand your sports culture into other non-traditional sports. Well, what, I heard, what I heard, <laughs> wait a minute, what I heard 
is that the Tour de France may be uh, on delay because of the shortage of availability of performance-enhancing drugs. <laughs> now, we got, trust me, they have plenty of those. And what I heard, what I heard was that the performance-enhancing drugs help secure the COVID. So they're going <laughs> to Well, yeah, give me some, man. That's, See, that's, how, that's how rumors get started. So that's everybody know. We're, we're only joking. Yeah, yeah, joking, 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 so. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so and we'll, we'll talk more to the front because I want to ask you about uh, the Lance Armstrong documentary and all this. Stuff. We we got time. We'll we'll get into some of those things. But man, I appreciate you. I want you to stay healthy, man. Uh, mask. I mean, I I would imagine you're masking up, right? You're mask up. Oh guy, yeah, right? yeah. yeah. I, I, I mask up. Except the only time I don't mask up when I'm on my bicycle. So. Yeah, but that, yeah, that's when you're able to keep uh, appropriate social distancing. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm moving and we have we have social distancing, so it works out good. Well, that's awesome and great to talk to you again. Like I said, we'll. we'll We'll be talking. I want to thank Eddie as always for joining us, and we'll be talking NFL in upcoming episodes. But right now, it's time for the Lamont Award. I don't want to wish you no bad luck, but I hope your ship sinks with no lifeboats and no life preservers and a school of piranhas surrounding you, you big dummy. The Lamont Award goes to the player, team, entity, usually in or around the world of sports, that we deem to be the big dummy of the episode now this time out uh, it's not about no one in the world of sports we're not picking on anybody in the world of sports this time this is much more important it's a situation that is near and dear to me and it is COVID-19 prevention and so the Lamont award goes to all of the people who went well not just not just the people who went to the Trump rally over the weekend without a mask but to every Every dumb, every stupid, silly son of a that won't wear a mask out in public, you are the recipient of the Lamont Award. And let's start with the Trump rally. I want you to hear this clip. This is a clip from a real person. This is from MSNBC. Here's what he said. I personally don't. I know COVID is real. Uh, we had a friend who died from COVID, and um, and his uh, son was uh, on a ventilator. He almost died. Stop. Stop right there. So the question was, did he have any concerns about not wearing a mask? So I mean, Was he worried at all? Apparently not. So he says here. He knows that it's real because he had a friend that died and his son that almost died. So that should be the end of the clip right there, right? That should be it. Done. So let's see where he goes from here. So we know it's real, but then at the same time, uh, you know, you don't know what's the facts, you know, because you feel like maybe one side plays it one way and the other side plays it another. So me personally, I don't really know, but I do know this, that even the ones that are very concerned about COVID, when we spent time with them last five days, they were, they were interacting without their masks normally. So you know that it's real, but at the same time, you don't know the facts. So your friend dies, his son nearly dies, but you don't know the facts because one side is playing it one way, the other side is playing it the other. What is the side of your friend dying? <laughs> what side did he play? And then what is the other side to the side of the friend that died? Because I'm not understanding that. And you still know friends who had concerns but carried on like normal. 
This is so dumb. This is dumb, stupid, ridiculous. This is ridiculous. This man, he says it, and he seems like a nice person. Look, you know, he's an American. He may be misguided. He may be myopic about the president, but he seems like a good, decent human being. Yet, he knows it's real and still doesn't know what to believe. He is an example of many different examples of dumb that will not wear masks. So I, I'm saying, please, look, we know here in Houston, it's exploding. I go to the grocery store, I'm masked up, double masks. The bottom line, we can really make a dent in this thing. We can re Other countries have done it. Other countries have masked up and kept social distancing. Uh, what they say, well, uh, South Korea, 50 million people, less than 300 dead. What? Like, really? This is what they were able to do? We're at 120,000. 120,000. It's crazy. It's insane. I love y'all. We don't have to die like this. We are better than this. No, we're not. But I want to believe that we're better than this. Please, please mask up Houston. We're going to be like New York. I mean, at least in New York, they're all on top of each other. I'm 25 miles from downtown Houston. It's crazy, man. It's crazy. Please mask up. And for all of you who do not mask up, you all are big dummies. You big dummy. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna wrap this thing up, but before I let go, before I let go, I want to thank Kalina, want to thank Eddie Robinson, want to thank you guys, want to remind you, you can call the sports line at 832 941 6614 and give us your thoughts on any and everything. And of course, you can go to the wagewordproductions.com website and of course on Facebook and on Twitter. You can check me out, uh, Sports Talk with Devin Wade on Facebook and at Wade's Word on Twitter. And until next time, remember these four things. Number one, I don't do no favors after 6 o'clock in the evening. Two, I ain't got no money. Three, I'm not harboring any fugitives from justice. And four, bye. This has been the Sports Talk with Devin Wade podcast. Remember... You can follow him on Twitter at Wade's Word. Thank you for listening.